You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. Right. We are excited for our uh, episode with, to share with you all today. We've got an excellent guest with us. Uh, we've got the one and only Sheila Wise Rowe. Uh, she's a truth teller who is passionate about matters of faith and emotional healing. She advocates for the dignity, rights, and healing of abuse and racial trauma survivors and racial conciliation. Sheila holds a master's in counseling psychology and over 28 years of experience as a counselor, spiritual director, educator, writer, and speaker. She's counseled and taught counseling in Massachusetts, Paris, France, and for a decade, Sheila worked with homeless and abused women and children in Johannesburg, South Africa. Uh, she's a member of the Red by Redbud Writers Guild and the International Women's Writers Guild, and her uh, Essays can be found all over the place in a whole bunch of different sources, um, so you can look that up. In 2020, Sheila authored the award-winning book, Healing Racial Trauma, The Road to Resilience. And recently, uh, she wrote Young, Gifted, and Black, A Journey of Laments and Celebration. She's a sought-after speaker at retreats, colleges, churches, organizations, and seminaries uh, all throughout the U.S. and abroad. And she's a volunteer member of the Community Ethics Committee of Harvard Medical School, a policy review resource for its teaching hospitals. Um, she currently lives in Boston, Massachusetts with Nicholas, uh, her husband of 31 years and near their adult children. When Sheila's not engaging in ministry, she loves date nights with her husband and creating art, crafts, and rummaging through vintage shops. And so we're just so <laughs> grateful, Sheila, to have you on Inverse Podcast. Welcome. Thank you. This is great. Thank you for having me. Sheila, we can't wait to open up the scriptures with you and uh, um, learn from you and uh, learn to see the scriptures through your life experience. But before we do, we thought we'd give you a little bit of a chance to talk about uh, projects or I know you've got several books that you've offered to the world um, so that we don't forget later on. So we thought we'd get that out yeah. of the way straight away. Um, is there any particular you want to lift up at the moment? Yeah, well, my most recent book is um, Young, Gifted, and Black. Um, it's a, a journey of lament and celebration, and that was released in February of this year. Um, and it's a book that I feel flows out of healing racial trauma. So um, that book uh, really addressed issues around racial trauma with Black, Indigenous, um, other people of color, and their stories and their journey towards healing and building resilience. And so out of that, um, what I was seeing was that there was an increasing number of uh, particularly young uh, black folk who were um, really uh, ones who excelled in their areas of, of expertise. So they were, they poured lots of time, effort, education, and it, it included the wide spectrum. So it wasn't just about academics. They were sports, it was sports, it was music, it was, uh, you know, dance, um, as well as education. And, and what I was noticing was just that there was this, this real drivenness 
And, and in light of that drivenness, there was a way in which um, they were easily caught in performance and to the detriment of uh, really uh, having people see the reality of who they fully are. And that includes their vulnerabilities. And so um, many were going through mental health crises and we saw things like Simone Biles and we saw mm. Naomi Osaka both just pull back because it was becoming really overwhelming. And, and in some ways they really modeled like, okay, this is, you can stop. <laughs> you can stop and rest and reset and get support and healing and not just continue to um, just go with the, the grind of it all. And, um, and so just in, in really being prayerful about what is, what's the next book, I really felt like, like the Lord was shedding light on that. Like this is a, this is a population that often falls through the cracks. You know, it's like, you know, usually it is about the squeaky wheel. So it's whoever's a squeaky wheel in terms of what is perceived as a problem, um, can they get that can person can get most of the attention now should that person get attention absolutely absolutely but what ends up happening is that the ones who are quieter who seem to be well performing it's it, it is easy to forget that mm. those individuals also have needs and also need to be supported and so the book really came out of that place um you know, a lot of that's my own story because that's often the case with authors. You know, things come out of their own journeys as well. And um, and also looking at my children. So two of my children, I have two children. They both are in the book. Um, and then I did um, interviews with other folk. But uh, so the inspiration came out of that 20, 22, 21 um, time period just where everything was shaking. And another inspiration came uh, from uh, Chadwick Boseman um, in mm. his uh, 2019 Screen Actors Guild Award, uh, where he talked about that term, young, gifted, and black. Mm. And um, I just wanted to quickly just read a section of it, of what he said, it's really short. But after his uh, winning that prize, uh, they asked him, what is that? And he said that he borrowed that language to be young, gifted, and black. Um, and that if, if you think about Nina's song, which is from the 60s rather, and it's a civil rights anthem. And he said, uh, to be young, gifted and black, we all knew what it was um, like. We had something special that we wanted to give the world, that we could be full human beings in the roles that we were playing, uh, that we could create a world that exemplified a world that we wanted to see. He then continued backstage and he said, and when you aspire to do something that is outside the realm of what the world would see you doing, to be young, gifted and black is all of that. It is to have everything, but then not quite able to grasp it and to be able to persevere through it though. And so that really, it's that struggle those oppositions, but then that level of perseverance. And, and so for me, uh, the book really is an encouragement to young gifted and black folk that they're seen, that they're heard, they're loved, um, and, um, and, and for them to embrace their entire story, which includes celebration and lament, hence the subtitle of the book. Um, 
And, and so in that book, my, my hope is that they would really have this sense that Jesus is always welcoming, that he is there to address our pain, to meet our deepest needs. And, and even in the place where there's been a tendency towards self-sufficiency, that he is there to, to help uplift them and, and to uphold them and to strengthen them, to keep working, going forward. Um, I think that, I mean, I think about the book and just what are, you know, I, I, I address some really complex situations and stories. Um, there are not just African-American stories, there are immigrant stories as a woman who's from Haiti. There's a, a man whose father is Nigerian, mother is African-American. There's, there are two um, stories of biracial folk. There's trans, uh, transracial adoption story, um, my kids. Um, who would consider themselves third culture kids and that they are American, but spent most of their uh, like formative years in South Africa. Uh, and, and so all of those stories and um, were to really give this example of how do these individuals navigate through some really complex things like family dysfunction and um, abortion and adoption and um, racial identity issues. Uh, and, and yet, you know, they have pushed through and persevered and there's been a cost, um, but they have and continued to strive towards um, to healing and to, to have like a fully integrated life. And so that's kind of the, the book in a nutshell. I also include um, reflection questions at the end of every chapter so that mm. the reader really takes some time to really digest what it is they're reading, how do they apply it to their own life. Um, the book is full of like scriptural references and stories as well. Um, and then I also include embodied prayer practices. So listening prayer. Wow. Practices. So it's, it's chock-a-block, it's full of stuff. Uh, as they say in South Africa, I'm like, people understand what chock-a-block means. But anyway, uh, I saw these go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's kind of the the book. Um, yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, both of your books are just so timely. I think you know that, and I know from the reception and just the way that they um, have really, I think, right as especially maybe there haven't always been times where people have been looking for that kind of, you know, resources. But I think right now is one of those times where um, these resources are desperately being looked after. And I know even this, with your, the theme of your second book, um, it makes me feel seen, you know, like in terms of kind of my own journey, maybe probably early on, maybe I was a little bit more of the, the kid that visibly needed some help. <laughs> but, um, but certainly my adult years, college and beyond, um, it's, um, I've not always given myself permission to um, also seek help, right? And thinking like other people need it, not me. Um, yeah. And I think that um, just even naming that is really powerful and then giving space for people to kind of explore, you know, their inner worlds and their own spirituality and a kind of process of healing in the midst of um, what, when everything looks packaged fine, right? When everything yeah. looks great. So yeah, yeah really appreciate um, your work and yeah. um, sharing it with yeah. the world. One thing that I wanted to just add as kind of a caveat in terms of the kids who don't need help. So in sharing the story of my son, he on paper or just looking at him, he was one of those kids who needed help. 
and and I share that his story because it was one where there's this tendency to kind of steer black boys particularly but black girls as well into some like a category like oh this kid has ADHD this kid has uh, you know emotional issues this and 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 it felt like not felt it was very explicit and I share that in the book of his journey of my as a parent having to really fight on his behalf um, knowing who this kid was and refusing for him to be labeled um, yeah. and so I can now look back at him who's 27 now who you know is getting his master's is married um, you know works at MIT I, you know it's a it's a big shift from what I was told when he was like in preschool like mm. this kid is is a mess you know yeah. um, and so I wanted to just say that that oftentimes it it also is that that kids are presented a certain way. I've had yeah. so many adults like you who've read the book and said, wow, that was that was me when I was a kid. You know, I was the girl who got into the bad relationship or I was you know, I'm, was adopted. And, and this really spoke to me as an adult, not a millennial, which is the supposed target of the book. Um, but it's even broader than that. Well, Sheila, one of the things that we love to do here at Inverse is to uh, set the atmosphere with a biblical text, right? And so uh, we've asked you to pick a text that you can read now, then we'll dive into conversation later. But can you share that with us now? Yeah, so I, I thought about that. And um, I um, I wanted to share Hosea 11, 3 through 5, mm. um, where the Lord says, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it uh, was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like the one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Beautiful. Yeah. I think it's the first time we've had Isaiah actually opened up true, so I'm looking forward to this. We try to take seriously um, people's stories as uh, not just starting places, but the context for people's theologies. As a way of getting into that, we often ask people, where do you first remember encountering the Bible? Are there particular memories for you oh, yeah. around? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I was bused at a very young age. Um, into a white community. It was an experimental program called Operation Exodus in Boston. And so we were, um, the black schools in the community were horrible. This was in the mid 60s. And um, so <laughs> we took a bus to school. And one of the unique things about school was that in the middle of the day, uh, it was like once a week, it may have been twice a week, if I recall, we would go down the street to a Baptist church and have Bible school which was just kind of weird um, wow. because that was not happening in where the school that was right up the road from my house, which was an all black school. So that was different. And so that was kind of my first introduction um, that was, uh, but you know, and he made it fun. So it, you know, in terms of the exercises and the skits and all that kind of stuff, um, the, there was a white pastor who ran that, um, that time. And it was, the, so the, uh, Protestant kids went to the Baptist church and then the Catholic ones went to the Catholic church that was up the road. 
Um, and uh, it, that was my earliest, I think. And then the next one was my aunt, who was Pentecostal, and she attended a church that was uh, further up the street from us. And so I think my parents at that time, you know, during the 60s, they had been a part of the Nation of Islam and mm. under Malcolm X. And, um, and when Malcolm was killed and Martin was killed as well, and they um, left. And then, then they weren't really anything for a while, but they did believe in faith. They were brought up Christian, actually. Um, but they let us go with um, my aunt to her church. And so this little storefront Pentecostal church was um, where I started um, kind of learning more about the Bible and, and actually engaging uh, more adults. And it certainly was a different experience because it was a Pentecostal church. So the services were a bit wild and it was, but it was fascinating to me and just kind of, you know, <laughs> and, you know, we had Sunday school for the kids. And so all of, with, there were nine of nine kids in my family. So all nine of us would go and uh, my cousins and other kids. And it was, it was partly fun. Um, and so those are my early early experiences wow uh, again another first for, i think this is the first time that anybody has brought up brother malcolm in the context of asking about um people's experience of scripture <laughs> Sheila, do, do you mind me asking and like you, you tell me otherwise um if not uh but were you in chicago were you in no. like new york were no we were in boston so we were in are you in boston itself yeah right. yeah okay. and 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 he actually lived in boston in roxbury for quite a while yeah, yeah. wow so um yeah so that was i you know i don't have a lot of memory because it was really early on but i do suppose that i went with my parents at least my sister probably my the top three of us of my siblings went to the mosque and sort of, I just, but I don't remember wow. it, but yeah. And those school experiences, were they integrated in the churches? Um, uh, the, what do you mean? Sorry. Oh, I'm just that. fascinated because um, my, my Australian assumption is that America and um, schools and religion are just like, you know, chalk and cheese. Like they, they, they not then. No, yeah, no, back right. then. Yeah, that's why you hear people lamenting about prayer in schools and whatever. So at that point, it was not considered that. It wasn't considered a problem. Right. At least in certain settings. Wow. Yeah. And if you were Jewish, what did you do during that school uh, You either went to either one of those or you stayed in school. But I don't think you were allowed to stay in school. So I think they had to choose, which was wow. rather odd. Yeah. Are you, are you a Catholic Jew or a Baptist Jew? <laughs> that's amazing. That, yeah. Thanks for like yeah. that's really interesting. Yeah. 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 That's very fascinating. So Sheila, as you think about your early experiences with the Bible, I'm curious, you know, one of the neat things for us is um, that we interview a wide range of folks from a lot of different experiences and they have a lot of different encounters with the Bible. And I would love to hear like, were your experiences with the Bible liberating, uh, empowering? Were they healing? Were they harmful? Were they oppressive? How would you describe some, maybe something else more nuanced? How would you describe your encounter with the Bible and interactions with it? Well, as I said before around, you know, as a kid, it was fun. It was a classic kid 
stories, you know, the children's Bible. So, you know, um, when we got to recite and go in front of the church and read, memorize uh, a story and then share it. Um, and so the, and that on that level, it was fun. Um, but I stopped attending church. Like by the time I reached high school, um, I, I stopped and partly because holding that um, attention of, okay, this is what I'm learning in Bible, a Bible study um, on a Sunday, this is how I see people kind of living because it was my aunt and it was a Pentecostal church. It really felt like people were really like rigid in some ways in terms of like how you dress, what you do, mm. you know, these certain things. And, and yet here I am, I'm in a secular high school. Um, I, it, it's in the middle of busing when it was in full swing and it was yeah. just craziness. Um, and I, thought, you know what, this is not, I don't know how this relates to my life um, as a teen. It doesn't quite fit. Um, I still believe in God, but I'm going to just continue to move on with my life. And it wasn't until after I had graduated from college that I then had a crisis a moment, like most people do, many people do, and in which I really came to the end of myself and realized, you know what, if I'm not in control. Who's in control? Somebody has to be in control. My life is out of control. And um, ultimately that leading me to, to the Lord and leading me to a small church. Um, and actually it was a, an AG church in Cambridge. And, um, and there, the pastor was, was really brilliant in terms of um, breaking open the word and his Bible mm. studies were like seminary level. And that was amazing. It just was profound and deep. And, um, and so it really felt to me in that time that the word was really nourishing and really informed kind of where I was at that point of, um, you know, recovering from some really painful experiences and, um, and really finding solace, finding hope um, and love as I read. And I had to work through though my, um, because of my parents and my father had, um, my parents divorced, my father left. And, and so this notion of God the father and mm. how do I embrace God as father when I, my experience of father ha wasn't great. And so in the scriptures, I love Jesus. <laughs> like mm -hmm. I found Jesus as the most compassionate, loving, kind. And then I read the scripture that he says, well, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. I was like, whoa. <laughs> um, and so for me, that was um, challenging and um, transformative, mm -hmm. uh, but it was liberating. And it really, um, it really helped in terms of my healing, that father wound that I had, that I've been carrying for, for so long. That's beautiful. Thanks for trusting us with that. Um, we'd love to give you permission to share a little bit about your hermeneutic. We don't always use that um, word uh, with people, um, but we, we phrase it different ways, this question, but really what we're trying to say is we want to give the people we've invited into this space permission and authority in their own story as how they read the scriptures. And so I, I guess we're asking um, what lens from your own life experience would you offer to others in terms of 
liberating ways to read the Bible because we're aware that for so many people, there are many other ways to read the Bible that don't share in that liberating work. Yeah. Um, I think that just by nature, I am definitely someone who's more, I've been more towards the creative side than I would mm -hmm. say the more intellectual. Um, I do you know, as I talked about that pastor and he's really breaking open the world and you're kind of wrestling with it. It was really, those are powerful experiences. But for me, it's also been over the years learning how to look at scripture and to pray and, and to meditate on scripture yeah. and to listen. What is the Lord saying to me? Mm. Um, and what, how is he asking me to respond to this? And so in those quiet moments of listening, um, I all, almost always hear something um, that mm. really breaks open um, that word and in terms of its relevancy to, to my life and what I'm going through right now. Um, and even how, uh, even beyond me, you know, it's even reading the scripture and, and it's the Holy Spirit. So it's not just me praying, but the Holy Spirit bringing revelation uh, around things that are happening around me in my community, in the country, in the world. Um, but it, it requires that stopping and getting quiet for me. Um, because I can easily get into like this kind of driven work mode. Um, and even with that, where things can become very rote and even even reading the scripture, you know, it can be like, mm. well, I'm having my whole morning quiet time. It can feel like, eh, you know, it can get dry, stale, but I really believe that God is speaking all the time. And so it's, yes, it's in the word, but part of that you know, meditating on scripture is that it's then it's inside of me. And so even as I go walking in the park or I'm in a museum or I'm at a movie or whatever, like the Lord will bring up, like scriptures will come up um, and, uh, or, you know, in a situation, I have a sense that the Lord is speaking. He's saying, okay, this is something I want you to pay attention to. Uh, and this is why. Um, so I get a lot of like, um, things that are kind of analogies or um, like symbolism, but it's always rooted in, and I always fact check with scripture so I don't go rogue. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, I love this. So it must be true. Like, no, does it come in line with scripture? <laughs> it doesn't. No. Um, yeah. So I think that, yeah, that would, that's, yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah, that's awesome. It, there's a couple of things that came to mind as you were sharing, Sheila. I was thinking about, um, well, what, so as you were talking about this, you know, posture of like how you are reading, right? The prayerful reading, the listening, and then the seeking to respond. And like, that's like the posture. It reminded me, I think, you know, maybe you don't know that I'm a little quirky because I have like this Anabaptist thing that's a part of my little formation. But I know um, in the 16th century, one of the things that they've talked about is how Anabaptists read scripture. And it was, um, I think some have called it like a hermeneutics of obedience, but it was just this posture that before one had even read or encountered the scripture, they're anticipating, right? that God is going to speak and that they need mm. to be faithful and obedient to God. Right. Mm. Um, that's, that's the prerequisite. You can't yeah. read properly without that mm -hmm. posture. Right. And I just think that's yeah. an interesting 
um, thing. Cause it's not exactly what you're saying, but it's very yeah. kind of resonating with that as well. This kind of prayerful spirit, anticipating that yeah. God is speaking, that God is alive, that God is moving um, yeah. and that we ought to be attentive and responsive. And it makes me, cause you use that phrase quiet time. And I know I had a friend who said, you know, it's interesting um, when we sometimes frame our time with God is quiet time and it like, it can almost sound like boring, right? It's like, you know, I'm going to have some quiet time now. And it's like, no, we're having time before, you know, the, the God of all creation. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, this encounter, can it be reduced to quiet time? Not that we don't need to quiet ourselves sometimes. Right. So we can Mm -hmm. listen and be attentive, but but sometimes we need like bigger words almost to hold mm. that kind of life that you're describing, right? Life yeah. with God, attentive yep. to what God is saying and how God is kind of revealing and inspiring and encouraging you throughout your day. And so, yeah, anyway, I just really appreciate <laughs> that. Um, and I think it's a really, um, it's a great reminder. And one of our previous guests just had, we had a whole conversation around, mm-hmm. you know, the living word versus, you know, just the written word in and of itself. And I think that yes. that is kind of leading us into that conversation as well. Yeah. So with that in mind, I would love for you with that same kind of prayerful spirits, that listening, that desire to respond to what God is saying in the world. Yeah. Can you invite us into, let's have a conversation on your Hosea text um, and dialogue a little more um, yeah. around that together and see what God might be saying to us today. Yeah. So, you know, I, so I got this question from you late. And so the, you know, I was really thinking through like, okay, scripturally, what, what to pull out. And so I did pull out that the Hosea scriptures in the book, Young, Gifted and Black. And there's this little section that I wanted to read and it. It really comes out of my engaging with that verse. Um, and and, in, and not just personally, but also with the people who are in the book. And um, I just want to read this very quickly. But um, so there are a couple of uh, people in the book and myself as well. So I share a lot about my, my own story. And I do include this whole notion of, um, you know, where the Lord says, when your mother and father forsake you, I will lift you up. And that there are ways in which my father did that. He forsook the family. And um, I had a couple of other uh, young millennials who had very similar stories with their father, one with the father, one with the mother. But I write that, um, that we experience profound healing, yet this will never change the reality of what we missed because of our parents' absence. We grew stronger in the face of the wounds and wonders in our family, our families. This is the same story for all of us. As we fully embrace the love of God, we began to see how he delights in us more than we dared hope for or imagine. The Lord parents us in the very places where there has been insufficiency or lack. In Hosea 11, three through five, the Lord says, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arm, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. The Lord redraws and enlarges our family lines. 
He protects and parents us in the deepest places of our hearts. The Lord fulfills our longing for a father or mother, and he does so through other people. In Psalm 68, five through six, we are told that the Lord is a father to the fatherless and set the lonely in families. And so I bring up that scripture because I, it's, it's more than words. Um, for me, it really, I, you know, I talked about that realization that when I've seen Jesus, I've seen the father and then to mm-hmm. unpack through scripture, the true nature of the father um, and coming across that scripture in Hosea and realizing that the things that I had attributed over the years to people like, oh, this was, the, you know, the boyfriend, the, um, the favorite teacher, the, you know, the pastor or the, these people. And it is people because people are choosing to be the hands and the feet, heart of Jesus uh, in, in that moment. But it, in essence, though, the source really is God saying, I'm, it's me working through people to mm-hmm. woo you with cords of human kindness. And, and so often we miss that. We attribute um, that kindness to uh, lots of, not just people, things too. Um, we can think that things uh, give us that, that sense of completion or wholeness or happiness um, when in fact um, the real source is, is God. Um, and, and I think it connects to that whole piece about him setting the lonely in families and that um, he, he woos us with cords of human kindness, but he also knows that we're relational people. Um, like we need like tangible people. And I think about this whole pandemic period and that we were so isolated and, um, and disconnected from people, just the touch, the hug, the, and how difficult that was. Um, and pre pandemic, um, as well as post pandemic, we are grappling with that. And I think that people are, I believe that they're re- reorienting their lives um, into, in terms of, I need people, I need relationship, I need connection, I need like a physical person to um, who's going to be there. And um, many people who really were despairing and lonely um, before the pandemic, it made it worse. Um, and so coming out of, of that, my hope is that it will, there'll be a resurgence in terms of people wanting to, to connect with one another. So I, I find it ironic, this whole thing with Meta. <laughs> it's just like, yes, we'll put on goggles and we'll pretend we're, I'm like, nobody wants that. <laughs> really, people really don't. Ultimately, that does, that does nothing. It does not feed you to have an imaginary friend. It's an imaginary friend, actually. That's what it is. Mm. It's like you have these imaginary experiences and that somehow is supposed to be life-giving. And I don't, I believe the human heart is that we want to feel connected with people. We want to love and um, to be loved um, by humans, not robots or images or algorithms. Sheila, I'm so aware that so much of your work um, on several continents has been around trauma and healing. And I'm struck by verse three. Um, It's imagery which um, 
uh, for, for those of us who um, are parents or um, at carers of, of little ones, what it is to, to see um, a baby go from crawling to walking and being in that position that you share, you know, the wonder of holding a little one's arms as they learn to take steps. And yet the rest of the verse is connected to healing. Mm. I, I'll find that fascinating because it, the imagery I'll, um, in, in one sense is learning what you didn't know before. And I really appreciate that even in your bio, um, you're not talking about racial reconciliation. You're talking about conciliation. Yeah. Um, there, there was not something there initially that mm. we're going back to. There is yeah. something that we're being called into that yeah. we need to face. A bit like the, the walking. Um, it, yes. It's not, I'm going to teach you to walk again. You're yeah. walking for the first. Really, I'd I love to hear um, you speak to those dynamics of what it is to not know that we're being healed while we're learning to do something that we maybe haven't done before. Could you speak yeah. into that, son? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know what? I, I really, so from a theological perspective, I really feel like once we have su- surrendered, we've, we've really given our lives to the Lord, I don't believe we can take it back. <laughs> We can try to take it back. And we often really, really try really, really hard. And sometimes it's like two steps forward, three steps back. And that word, there's this, but that's, that's life. Life is like this crazy wild journey. You know, it's, it's not as a straight line where it's just like, zoom, we're, we're there. And so I believe that, you know, as we've surrendered, God is working on us. He's constantly that wooing us with cords of human kindness, mm. wooing us in many, a multitude of ways of just wanting, drawing us back. He's so patient and so, you know, compassionate and loving. And, and yes, he'll give the hard word. Yes. Um, and we'll, there'll be challenges and, and struggles, but ultimately I believe the heart of God is calling us, um, calling us forward. And, you know, whether we recognize it or not, we may have to take some, we take these painful detours that go down these different roads um, where we think, well, I don't need them anymore or whatever. Um, But it isn't that he left and he said, I'm just done with you. Um, We've left. And, um, but I think that healing still is continuing. That wooing is still happening, even if it looks like someone took this really sharp detour. Um, and so I always, uh, even at the end of life for certain people, people like, well, a person didn't accept Christ. I don't know what that person did. <laughs> you know what I mean, <laughs> I wasn't there on their deathbed. I don't know. I mean, the Lord can, any multitude of things could have happened at that moment. So I'm not going to say what, what happened. I don't know. Um, but I do know that throughout our lives, there are many opportunities to um, re-encounter God. There are many ways in which he is working. Uh, and, and, and particularly when we're really open, we can see like these leaps in terms of our healing, when we really mm-hmm. are intentional in terms of really allowing him to do that deep healing work. Um, we start to see these exponential growth. growth. And I, can, I certainly can see that in my own life uh, from you know, being a non-believer believer in God, but not a practicing Christian um, in my 20s to fast forward, I'm now in my 60s. And I can see, yes, 
I look at that vast amount of time and it's just like, wow, I'm totally a different person than I was then in many, many ways. One of the things that I really, um, that's hitting me from this Hosea passage is um, that line, you're right. Um, I took them up in my arms, but I did not know that I healed them. Mm. And um, one of the things I've been wrestling with it's interesting like i i feel like my theology is better than my intuitive lived desires or wants from god right which is to say theologically i can say i can talk about how i experience god and the ways that maybe we construe or project what we want onto god and what god should be like and things like that but then like in moments where you see ongoing disproportionate suffering in the world and you're like god where are you right mm -hmm. and that's it's been a real i won't like that's something i've been wrestling with quite a bit recently yeah. um because i want god to like like show up and show up big for black people right like that's, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah you know yeah. like come on god where are you are yeah. you any good can you make any difference mm -hmm. at all what's yep. going on um and you know these reminders that you know sometimes you know, our expectations and projections of God maybe are misrepresenting the very nature and character of God and how God is present and at work is showing up, um, healing and restoring, encouraging, inspiring people to love tangibly, giving, uh, I was thinking as you were talking about, um, in fact, so there's two folks um, in our group that uh, over the summer I got to connect to one was Naya who's in our group and other was Gigi who got to come to Harrisburg and both of them gave me at separate times the best hugs like that where you just feel like loved um and it was like unexpected right like these yeah. moments where um and just thinking about yeah the touch the care the compassion mm -hmm. the way that God shows up through actual human bodies right yeah. um yeah. and is at work and I think is helpful to hold that um in the midst of frustrations, in the midst of, you know, maybe our theodicy questions that are too big for our human capacity to break down. I don't know. But anyway, I just really resonate with that and what you're saying as well. Yeah. Mm. You know what? One thing I, I wanted to add too is just, you know, this is not about like some, I don't know, whatever, kind of Pollyanna kind of perspective, because there are, there's real trauma, there's real pain there's real suffering in the world. And, and that is when we have that relationship where we can boldly be, go before the throne of grace. You know, we can lament. We can go, you know, like David and just go, oh, what the, <laughs> you know, Lord, what is going on? Like, where are you? Why are the wicked prospering? Like we can have that level of engagement when we're really honest and transparent about our pain about the suffering that we see in the world and asking like, what are you doing? I don't get it. What, what's happening here? Mm. Um, and and that, that's so important. That's a part of the healing process as well because so often we have been in situations where we've been silenced, our voices are shut down or you know, where we weren't allowed to speak and to share what it was that we were feeling or experiencing. And so to know that we can honestly pray cry, scream, swear, do whatever. Like God is not like freaked out or intimidated um, by, yes, he is a holy God, but he also wants 
a relationship. He doesn't want robots. He wants a relationship. Um, and in a relationship, it's that you're sharing the things that you're grappling with and struggling with. And so um, that is, that's an important part of the healing process as well, is to, uh, to be honest with God and then allow him to speak into that and inform what it is that you're feeling, what it is that you're seeing, um, and helping to put things into perspective so that we're not just trying to, you know, I think we, we end up tending to lean towards, I've got to figure this out. If I can't figure it out and I can't understand it, then, you know, then it must be X versus there's something, there's mystery. There are things that I don't know. And I have got to trust that God is working something out. I don't know what it is. I don't understand what's going on now, but he's doing something. And, um, and so all I can do is I can pray, you know, God, I want to see your goodness in the land of the living. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah. Even as you're saying that, Sheila, I'm aware that, um, and I'm not sure if this is preacher lines or I, I, I'll confess that um, I didn't know what passage you were choosing uh, um, tonight. So, um, but I distinctly remember a sermon for what it's worth. And this is always dangerous when you just pull out a sermon and I haven't, but um, that the um, strings of loving kindness or human kindness or the, or the gentle um, uh, strings uh, was a reference to um, verse three and uh, an adult helping a little one walk. And Drew, have you heard this before that it, it's a reference to a string that was placed round it almost like in it would fit in the armpits and the child would be able to hold um, their hands. Uh, so the string is supporting them around the armpits and they're also holding the string as the adult. So there's something about this kindness and not knowing where they're being led that is actually about into uh, independence as well um, mm. in this relationship, which is fascinating um, yeah. because I think... Um, there is a danger sometimes um, that you'd know so well as a spiritual director that people want you to do the work for them. Uh, that they um, uh, tell me what God is doing now. Um, here, here's the, and there's a sense in this where it's like um, I can I can help lead. So you have agency. You have responsibility. Um, it, you're actually uh, being caught up and involved in this work. Like um, when our Lord says. Um, uh, I now call you friends, that you're actually inside of a way that something's working and you've spent enough time with Jesus to know what Jesus is like. So when the, you, you do see what Jesus is up to, you know what the Father is like, as you were referencing earlier to use the language of John. Um, and the, there's something of that dynamic here that um, we might just want to be picked up, but there's actually something about spiritual growth that's um, not even our hands being held uh, but not knowing that we're being healed as we're being led in something that we actually feel feel alone in even. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's powerful. It's great. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that. I hadn't heard that, the uh, strings. That's, that's, that's really cool. That's <laughs> great, great imagery. Um, well, as we used to say at seminary, I, I'm not sure it's there, but it'll preach. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Yes, it would. <laughs> I hope we're not about to get some angry letters like, Jared, I thought you knew your Brueggemann better than that. What are you doing with this passage? 
Uh, I think that that's always a challenge because even, um, you know, I, I've had some people say, well, that's out of context. I'm like, you know, every, all scripture is for, you know, it, it's to educate, it's to rebuke, uh, it's for, you know, for teaching. Right. It's, it's all, all of it. Um, and so it does, it's not just in the context of, well, that was in the Old Testament. He's talking about, you know, Israelites and Babylonian captivity. It's like, okay, I can relate to that in certain ways. Yeah. Well, it's, it seems like your aunt's Pentecostal church's hermeneutic is still sticking around some because that, yes, it is. that Pentecostal sense of like, God is speaking this now. Yes. Um, it, it is a different way of engaging. Like it, it, yeah. it does um, require, um, well, a, as um, the tradition that has shaped um, uh people in in your part of the world that the world is um so fortunate to to learn from would say what it is to have a sanctified imagination right yes it's part of we're being asked to um be involved in this work to be caught up in this work yeah yeah absolutely yeah and i i I think too just the 10 years that we lived in johannesburg um and just uh you know attending a uh, church that leaned more charismatic in a way and just um, seeing like some like amazing amazing experiences and mm. encounters with God and just transformation like it's irrefutable mm. you know that God is living and active like now <laughs> yes Chilly. in the word but also now yeah you brought up South Africa yeah uh, I'm aware that um, the, the shape of racial trauma for that nation is different um, from my own as it is different from yours, even though that um, we often talk about these realities uh, as if they're the same, but there's nuances. Um, can I ask about the, the shape of racial healing, given the shape of racial trauma and your experience of ministering in settings where the the trauma itself is of a different nature. Even like the South African ex- example of what it does that it's not a binary, but the hierarchy um, between like um, uh, whites, um, coloreds, blacks, and what that does to imagination versus the American experience. Not to mention like the Australian experience when people say BIPOC or black indigenous people of color. And here in Australia, um, black is indigenous. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a reality that also confuses some of that. Um, would you speak a little to the racial trauma and the racial healing and the different contexts and, and what it looks like to be sensitive to that? Um, you know what I, having grown up in the U.S. and have seen um, just how it, it racism has affected my community. I think that there are people in my community who believe that we're the only ones who experience that. And in Healing Racial Trauma, my first book, one of the things that was really important was moving just beyond that. And not that I'm not minimizing the experience of, of my people, but that the racism that is insidious has affected not just me, but also other people of color. And mm. that if you think about the South Africa model where there was apartheid and there was, as you said, there was a hierarchy um, and which was to create division mm-hmm. and it was like a caste system. 
And so the lowest level of the caste were black South Africans. And then it was like, okay, if you're Indian, you were treated better. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're colored, you were treated a little bit better. If you're Indian, you were treated a little bit better. Um, and it was a way to divide people of color, particularly. Mm-hmm. And in, in the US, I feel like it's the same thing. It's, I can have a perspective as a black American that all the other people of color, are, you know, they really are okay or fine or somehow they have like really preferential treatment or they don't experience racism when the reality is that they do. And so in both instances, I feel like there's this kind of divide and conquer that happened that's very similar. Um, I found South Africa to have so many similarities to the black story. Um, And if you think about the fact that apartheid fell in 1994, that's absurd. Mm -hmm. That's really, that's insane. Not, 19, yeah. not the 60s, 1994. Yeah. Um, and so going to South Africa the first time in 2001, it was an eye-opener. It was rather shocking um, just to see how, even though it was six years earlier, like they were really in baby state, the baby early stages of trying to come out of this trauma, trying to heal, trying to kind of map this way forward. And I still feel like they're still in that process mm. um, because it takes a lot to just break off the emotional shackles um, spiritually as well as economically of, of being under an oppressive system and still yet having to, similar to here, having to be confronted with it on a regular basis. Um, it's a difficult thing to navigate. So. And in that way, there were there were lots of, of similar similarities, um, and it's interesting too that the, you know, the the sixties, the civil rights movement, uh, Dr. King, like that movement spurred movements around the world. That's right. Um, and so you can go to Northern Ireland and see mm-hmm. MLK on painted on walls. <laughs> um, you can go to uh, on my family's the- streets in in Belfast. Yeah, literally. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay, I have to tell my my daughter in law is was born in Belfast. Her father is um, from Belfast. She lived there early on, but she's gonna be like, oh my gosh, you met somebody from Belfast. Every time I meet somebody, they're like, there are not many of us. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, so I'm I'm bringing that up to say that there there are connections, and if mm. actually. Um, even look at the history in the U.S., we can see we can see those same kind of notes around the world, you know, whether it's the caste system, even in India, you mm-hmm. know, you know, with the Dalit, and so, yeah, it's it's sad and frustrating, and you know, Drew, as you said, <laughs> kind of kind of piss me off, <laughs> and I'm you know in prayer, like okay, Lord, but then the the question then becomes, okay, what do what are you what are you calling me to do, Lord, mm. in the midst of this? And so when I was here and working with kids in inner city schools as a therapist and um, working with families and doing group work and in South Africa with women who homeless and um, formerly um, like abused women and unhoused mm. women, I and the children, that was the Lord saying, okay, this is what, this is how I want to con- you to contribute. Um, you know, getting funds for uh, women to 
pursue college or beauty school or cooking school. And, and so we have a number of college graduates and, and it's just wonderful just to see what, what God has done. But it's, it's always leads back to that question of, you know, what, what is my part in this? What are you asking mm. me to do? Or yeah. it's not just that's, about. That's a, a James Conian move, right? Like mm-hmm. James Cone, when he's, and he's kind of challenged by like black humanists and such in terms of God and evil and they're hypothesizing and is God a white racist and all these big questions are going on. And Cone's response basically is that, you know, um, that what we see, the, the character of God that we see in scripture, it's not, a, it's not wrestling or grappling with uh, the existence of evil and oppression and suffering. That's taken for granted as a matter of fact, but it's a God that acts and responds and invites us to join in, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that um, for him is one of the things it's it's not then an intellectual exercise yeah. it's right. god inviting us to call yeah. to join to participate um in what god is doing in the world and i think that that's really powerful yeah. um reminder right of just um and and i think that it does i mean i've said this even to my own suit like you know i can sit back and just be frustrated about all the things that are going on or i can also which doesn't necessarily mean that all the frustrations will go away, but but it does change when all of a sudden I'm out there collaborating with my neighbors, mm-hmm. organizing on Absolutely. behalf of justice, you yeah. know, for my neighbors, especially those that are most vulnerable in my community. Then all of a sudden it takes on a different posture in terms of um, where we see God at work in the world. And so, Absolutely. yeah. yeah. Uh, going back to Jared's question though about South Africa, and I'm really curious what you think about one of the things that hit me, I did not get to spend as much time as you did, but, but being in Cape Town was really powerful and the kind of conversations I was having um, was really powerful. And I'd be interested in your thoughts about just the, the trauma implications of being in a context where like here in the US, not only are we a minority, but we're living in a context where there's deep denial of, mm-hmm. of yeah. atrocities and rewriting of history and how that shapes also trauma versus maybe yeah. being in a context where maybe the proximity, some of it seems more extreme, but also they have also at least named nationally what has gone on and the ways that, um, you know, the majority, it seems like they're able to have different kind of conversations in the public square. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I'm curious what you think about those two dynamics or if you want to nuance that some. Uh, you know what, I think that one of the things with the, um, one of the good things about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which happened after apartheid. So it was an opportunity mm-hmm. for both sides to kind of uh, speak the truth about what happened. So um, there was not a denial of history but mm-hmm. it was one of, we're going to acknowledge the, tr- the truth that you know this person's kid went out to school and never came back. What happened to that kid? So the person who actually did the deed, the police officer or whoever uh, confesses to that. Um, so speaks the truth about it. And so that part, mm-hmm. I feel like that's something America needs to learn is like mm-hmm. to be able to speak the truth about it. The problem then becomes and this is, was the case in, in some instances and, and quite a few in South Africa was, well, what do you do with the trauma of 
you're a mom and now you know how your child died. Like you wondered mm. how, what happened to them, whatever. And now you have the gruesome details. Mm. Are you getting the support that you need to work through that trauma? So that's mm. a secondary kind of a trauma yeah, um, and a level of grief. And, and, and there could have been more to help people who heard really horrific things to really work through that pain. Um, and, but that was not really available to them. Uh, but I have to give credit to South Africa for at least acknowledging the truth of yeah. the matter. And I feel like what's happening here in this country and this kind of backpedaling and denial of the truth, like we're not, this is not, <laughs> the facts are there. The libraries mm. are littered with books. Um, is research. It's all there. There are lived experiences. There are people who live through things that can tell the story. And so the whole backlash of, you know, let's pin everything that has to do with race or justice or whatever under the banner of CRT, like it's communism or whatever. (laughs) Uh, But we're not going to, we don't want to hear that. We don't want anybody to feel bad or whatever. And it's just kind of like, you know what? If you don't face your history, you're going to repeat your history. Period. That's right. That's just the story. That's just the yeah. reality. And so facing it, you know, as a believer, is that you not only so TRC was also this opportunity to forgive. You know, so the mm. perpetrator would be really if they actually told the whole truth. Amnesty was in many cases to... they were released. Some, yeah, some were they go to jail, but but it, you know, amnesty was granted. So. So I wonder at what point in terms of the U.S., if we actually really, really are honest about our history, um, we keep the promises that we made to the indigenous people, to mm-hmm. African-Americans, you know, mm-hmm. the 40 acres and a mule, which actually was granted and then reneged on <laughs> um, and taken back. Mm-hmm. Like if we actually honored those things, like I, so I believe scripturally, you know, in terms of vows, oaths, whatever, like our yes, is yes or no is no um if you look at the old testament you look at the new testament and then there are all of these admonishments to, to or encouragements to to remember it's mm-hmm. not like a whitewashed history That's it was right. you know we on sunday um advent service our pastor did the whole lineage um and it was uh, from matthew i think it was matthew mm-hmm. And of Jesus, and it was just mm-hmm. like the people in it, it was a hot mess, you know. It was just like <laughs> some of the people he was thinking, "Wow, how did they get in there?" You know, but they're there. Yeah, they are there. Their story is there. It's messy. It's sad. It's whatever. And you know, there's some wonderful stories in there, but then there's some really messy ones. And so God is not like freaked out by the mess of it all. But when we actually learn, like, this is a part of the story of this country. Let's let's look at it, let's own it. And then we have to figure out like, how do you map a way forward? Um, because, you know, you know, ultimately that genealogy leads to Christ, okay? Leads to the most monumental place, but it was messy along the way. And, and we need to learn from the mess because the mess teaches us what we need to not do again. Yeah, it's really powerful. And I, I wonder if, and there's lots of, critiques um, to be had about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, including the gutting of the economic plan that was initially there and then was dropped. And um, in terms of 
um, Drew and I in the South African context in um, more recent times, certainly for the generation that are in university or going into university now, mm -hmm. the impact upon them that um, this, this wave of goodwill that previous generations rode in on has dried up because people are still in the same economic situations. So there's still an economic apartheid, even though formal apartheid, racial apartheid has ended. It's still white supremacy is still baked in in terms of geographical locations where people live and work and what they have access to. Um, but I, I wonder if part of the genius of the amnesty program was um, the unwillingness to hide. And I think part of it, Sheila, was that the it was televised. Yes. So if you yeah. wanted forgiveness and not to spend your life in jail um, for the crimes that you did under the apartheid system, you had to go on national TV and in front of these weeping mothers say, yes, as a white police officer, mm -hmm. I dragged your child like they were a dog through yeah. your neighbourhood and this happened repeatedly, blah, blah, blah. And these are the stories that come up and up yeah. again and they're incredibly painful. Yeah. But it's it's not this individualist, um, uh, you go to therapy about that, but this is our pain. Yes. both as yes. as neighborhoods as a community um which is far more in keeping in terms of how the scriptures are written as well um than how some of the forms of christianity that are most radically marketed around the world um uh, particularly from your nation but not only like it's yeah. more universal than that um turn it into about you and your soul yeah. instead of us as a whole and, and what yes. is it for us yes. as a whole to face this truth for somebody mm -hmm. to confess and then they walk around these streets with everybody knowing and forgiveness looks like not us forgetting, but remembering in ways that yeah. the dignity of those lives that were lost were restored and your dignity can be restored, not by hiding, but actually, well, as Tutu put it, there is no future without forgiveness. Here's yeah. the forgiveness. The truth is in out in the open. And I think th that piece is missing both in my nation and yours when it comes to First Nations people, yeah. um, the history of colonisation, um, histories of slavery, and people forget about histories of slavery in Australia, that um, though it was limited compared to the US, it was present. Um, and it, it's those kind of um, things that I think Christians of all people should be advocating for repentance. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. You know what? And I, I think the, the other piece that's missing is, is it's repentance Obviously, that's turning and going in a different direction, but also it's repair. It's repair, yeah. repairing yeah. the damage that was done. And yeah. so, as you think about just under apartheid, and literally whole communities were moved out of their homelands, yeah. they were moved out of their communities, even in, in central Joburg, the name yeah. was changed. You know, it's now called Triumph, you know, mm. <laughs> from Sophia Town to Triumph. And it's just like, okay, but nobody said, well, Yes, I'm going to buy your house at market rate. Da, 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 you know, and uh, in, in in places like Alex Township and in, in Joburg, yeah. where it was like, oh, these people are going to now live in your house. They're going to take these bedrooms and whatever, or they're, we're building shacks in your backyard, and you're just going to have to deal with it. Um, or we're going to take this property because we want it. Uh, and and so where are the places where there's repair? And so it's wonderful to see when that actually does happen. And I've, I've seen that in South Africa, you know, there were farmers who, you know, they knew that land, they, they took that land mm -hmm. and moved the black folk who lived on that land for centuries off the land 
when apartheid fell, they really were believers and listening and, and feeling like God was saying, no, you need to give this land to your workers. And not only just give it to them, which typically happened, and this happened a lot in Zimbabwe, but it was just kind of like, give them the land and then we'll walk away. And then it just, they don't are quite equipped to, to hmm. make it uh, profitable. And then it falls to pot. But I'm going to work with you to get this, to make sure you have all the skills that you need to do this farm, to do it well, and make a living for yourself, your family, your community. And you will then, re, you know, you're repopulating this land. And so, so there were examples of that in South Africa. And that was amazing to see. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so repair is the absolute uh, yeah. a part of that in terms of moving. One of the uh, things that I, I loved when I was inside, everyone I talked to, I just asked them, so what kind of conversations are you having on reparations? That's like, like yeah. over and over, like everyone I had that conversation yeah. with. And it was quite fascinating, like to feel, I don't know, and maybe it was misrepresentative, but I felt like it was in the air, like this is what people want and there's a better yeah. conversation happening. And maybe there's some frustration about the political system and leaders and actually making it happen and how to get there. But it was in a, in the air in a different kind of way than I think, you know, it seems like we're excited just to even have like conversations at a different level here in the U.S. that are still marginal in comparison <laughs> to the much better conversations happening in South Africa. And so, yeah, Drew, I, mean, I, if, I do think yeah. if the Zacchaeus story was told, like uh, not in the Gospels, but in the U.S., it, mm-hmm. Zacchaeus would be like, so I'm forgiven. So I don't have to give anything back. Right. Yeah, right. How it works. Right. Like, I get exactly. forgiveness, but Jubilee, yeah. I don't have to do your Jubilee thing. But right. So Jared, get... that is how Zacchaeus is preached in the U.S. Exactly what you it said. Is. Right. They take the punchline oh out. Yeah. So yeah. you don't hear. I, that's how I always talk about. I mean, that's why I think the song is so popular in the U.S. Right. It is Zacchaeus was a wee little man and all this stuff, but then it takes the punchline. There's no reparations, no no redistribution of wealth, and most people don't think of. I mean, I've talked to somebody, uh, a professor. Now he was not a theologian or biblical professor, but but when I was talking to him um, about reparations, he was like shocked at the idea that it had anything to do with reparations. <laughs> I'm like, oh my goodness, what Bible are you reading? What yeah, gospel yeah. are you coming from? Right, where you're actually missing the heart. Of, yeah, this jubilee ethic that's being taught by Jesus mm-hmm. in response to a great harm that had been committed. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's um. It reminds me of um, um, Vinoba Babe's witness, who was um, uh, part of the nonviolent overthrow of the British Raj in India, and his um, uh, Bundan movement, which was literally, um, uh, I think it translates as like land back. But he, he would go and persuade people. So he was a contemporary of Gandhi and he would go and persuade people to hand land back um, uh, to the people who worked the land with them. It's everything you were explaining in terms of those experiments that you you were talking about, Sheila. Um, yeah. And that's Jubilee in practice. Um, th- that's literally the economics of Jesus. And for a generation in South Africa, because the economics um, that were going to actually um, uh, bake into the future of the country uh, a, a, a different system, uh, because that was stripped away, because the emotional work was so heavy and was seen as so significant that that 
would be fine. And we we write in all these neoliberal things like South Africa during that period sold away, um, they privatised water, like a human right, like water. That that all happened while all this important work has happened. Um, and to avoid Jesus on one and um, to go with Jesus on another is to actually avoid Jesus on both. Yeah, like f- forgiveness that is shallow will only last so long if it's not yeah. met with the work yeah. of repentance, where it is re- reparations, where it is to take seriously that um, salvation in that story is an economic reality. And it me. looks like yeah. he's saved from like his theft um, by being a part of a community where he gives back and now he has yeah. family. Yeah. Yeah. And they have land. They have, they, they have, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, you know, I think that when we don't deal with the issue of repair, it's, it becomes just shallow relationships, um, shallow forgiveness, cheap grace. It's just, there is not, mm-hmm. um, you know, you have people who are, and not, not everybody's a believer. So there are people, non-believers who are just kind of looking at this exchange and thinking, okay, well, what in essence, you know, is that that God in the sky? Like, how is he how is he intervening on my, in, in my life and my felt needs and where's justice? Um, and, and it can create this sense of, of doubt about what God is doing, but also I've got to take it upon myself to, you know, get justice and by any means necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, we've got to really, figure out like what does that look like in this country um and, and around the world what does repair yeah. what does repair look like yeah wow. so good sheila this has been rich thank you yeah thank you thanks for having me yeah thanks for coming through such so, yeah. so good spending time with you finally and also you got to say hi to nick for me <laughs> yes uh, i will. enjoyed hanging will. out with him um yeah. this past fall yeah Sheila, all these people who have gathered live, um, if you're willing, I'm sure they still have some questions, but we'll we'll wrap up our formal part of the podcast that will go out on the podcast. And this will just be us hanging out, having some fun if you do have time. But we did want to give you an opportunity to share with people. If people have listened to this and want to go deeper into your work and witness and uh, where they can learn more, where should we send them? You can send them to my website. So it's SheilaWiseRow.com. And, um, you know, I have some materials and things on there, but my um, email address is there. It's info at sheilawiseroad.com. You can always reach out um, if you want to uh, get more information about, you know, events that are happening or, or if you have any need, kind of point you in a, in a direction. Um, I, I don't have a, like a formal newsletter, um, but I do have some courses that are, will be rolled out in, in 2023 mm. so there'll be opportunity to do those um dealing with racial trauma one and then secondly dealing with um just emotional healing in general um mm. so the uh in both of those instances they'll be um rolled out i'm contemplating doing a podcast um just not sure <laughs> that's fantastic uh, um I, I think the world is ready for that <laughs> thanks thank you well, thanks sheila The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse. 